0: Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T shirt podcast.
1: Simon, how are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. You're in Joburg, did you say? I am in Joburg. Yeah. Wow. Lovely weather. No lockdown. It's fine. (laughs) Oh, wow.
0: Yes, I was there. When I went to work in Mozambique, we stopped. Obviously, our flight came into South Africa. And um, we Oh, sorry. We, we stayed at a lodge there in Joburg called brown sugar. Have you ever heard of it? no no oh it was uh let's just say one night in johannesburg is as good as one night in bangkok <laughs> okay really <laughs> maybe not so many girls but well not not where we were um but yes it was quite a memorable uh a member memorable occasion
1: well, as you can see from the background i'm in a very nice house in santon so
0: yes yes <laughs> i had a great time there and I'm of that age I grew up seeing the um, what do you call I don't know what you call it the uprising on television so the Zulus um, reacting against the security forces yeah um, our young people listening might be surprised but our news every night was filled filled with people running down the road with spears chasing after the, the, the police or, or and the police firing <laughs> off their, firing off their baton rounds. Um, Yes, incredible. So when I got to Johannesburg, Simon, it was quite, I don't think emotional is the right word, but it was certainly a um, a special moment to see a place that had been so much in in my history, in my youth, and to see the big mine dumpings, Mm. just incredible
1: yeah well I, i'm actually half south african so my mother was south african and i have a south african passport so i'm very familiar with what you're talking about <laughs> and um yeah quite amazing i mean you went to eton that's right i did yep
0: yeah i gave a talk to eton the other day funnily enough
1: okay <laughs> it's probably, quite yeah, like
0: <laughs> uh, I, I never thought in my life I'd be talking to Eton students, but they they seem to appreciate the, uh, the rea- realism in what I said. Um, I mean, I know a bit about um, Africa's colonial history. You had some uh, vicious fighting, Mozambique, obviously, Angola. Yeah, I just wondered how is it, you know, if you're half South African, does that throw up issues or do you notice a sort of lack of well, I
1: mean, it's, um, I mean, the first time I came to South Africa, uh, I was six and it was 1958 and we came by sea. Wow. <laughs> and my grandparents obviously were living here. And so it's always been a part of my life that, um, and I mean, I tend to find that, um, you know all sons of the empire to a certain degree one you know more or less very few english people have no connection with any part of the old empire mm. you know cousins in canada cousins in australia this that something or other and i think probably not so much now but certainly my generation was very much the norm i think you know, the people who were born in India, their fathers had served in the Indian army, or God knows what, but there were loads and loads of that sort of, uh, those sort of connections. And um, it's actually a bit of a hobby horse of mine, because what I find in Africa is an enormous um, residual goodwill towards the UK. And funnily enough, that is as strong, sometimes stronger in the non-British colonies Because they had the misfortune of being colonised by somebody else. (laughs) Mm. Yes,
0: there's such rich history in Africa. Um, I've read a lot of Wilbur Smith's books. I don't know what his reputation is over there, but certainly gives you a flavour of the depth of history that 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 there is there.
1: Oh yeah, I'm a big Wilbur Smith fan yeah i I, I actually thought that they were sort of training manuals for a while
0: (laughs) yes yes were you were you living in england when you joined the
1: army oh yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah. no so we never well actually no that's not true i mean but as a as in terms of how i was brought up i didn't live in south africa i think the longest i was here continuously was uh, 18 months Mm. Um, in fact went to live in south africa in 1997 and we lived there for six years which was great we lived in Cape Town Mm. um so uh i didn't live here as as a boy
0: yeah and you were scots guards is that right i was yes scots guards yeah
1: absolutely Uh, a a bit strange because not even slightly scottish (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, my yeah. grandfather joined the um, Scots Guards in the First World War, and that's, that's... why it became family regiment.
0: Uh, I see. Is that usual if you come out of Sandhurst that you can go to any? I mean, you could go to the Gurkhas, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, certainly in my day. Um, so now we're talking a, a quite a long time ago. So sort of nineteen sixty-nine. I mean, you when you went to Sandhurst which idea because in those days there was Sandhurst and Mons and Sandhurst was regular officers uh, Mons was short service I wanted to go to Santas, become a regular officer and um you kind of pretty much sort of uh, booked your place with your regiment probably before you went to Sandhurst you know uh, you sure. knew where you wanted to go and you would have had an interview with them before you went to Santas, and so they they would sometimes reject people and they'd say well you know good luck at sandhurst but we don't think you're what we want um that obviously didn't happen to me but that could happen and um so it was a whole sort of jockeying you know and also even then there were only a limit there were were a fixed number of places that the regiments could fill so if they had too many people wanting to come in then um you know they couldn't take them all Although that definitely wasn't the case with the Scots Guards in my day, we were very badly recruited for officers.
0: And the SAS for an officer, I'm assuming the selection is the same as as the men. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, you do the you do the same. Um, you have to get a better grade than they do on test week, and then you do officers' week, which is an extra sort of bolt on. Especially for you, <laughs> uh, which is officers' week was hard.
0: Wow, what what's hard about it? I'm guessing uh,
1: physical. Well, no, it's because you're well. In my case, we've just finished um, test week. We come straight off test week onto officers' week, so you're 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 tired anyway. So they've achieved that. <laughs> you're absolutely knackered. Um, the difficult part about it that I found is that um, on uh, on test week, it's a, it's purely objective. I mean, you've just got to make the times, you know, you, you've just got to make those times and get the grade. And that's on the watch and on the paper. Um, Officers week is much more about whether they like you or not as an officer. And so it's quite hard not to um, start trying to second guess it, you know what I mean? So they ask you a question or they throw something at you and you're, instead of just reacting, you're thinking, uh, what do they want me to say? You know, what <laughs> what am I meant to say? And which of course is uh, potentially fatal.
0: <laughs> yes. W- was it always on the cards you were going to go on selection? Was that your goal from the beginning?
1: Yeah, it was actually. My cousin, uh, Lockie McLean, was um, in the SAS. Uh, in the '60s, um, and I mean, he he went to Borneo, served in Borneo, his Guards Independent Parachute Company, then um, SAS. In fact, he was one of the founding troop commanders of G Squadron for SAS historians. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was at school and hearing about my cousin's exploits, and I thought, right, this is what I want to do
0: wow and i've seen pictures of you in the northern Ireland conflict haven't i
1: might have done yeah (laughs) um i did a lot of tours (laughs) oh did you really i did six tours oh my gosh were you power trained yes because uh, but in the special air service Ah. in fact i did the um at sandhurst i did the the what was called the Edward bear course which was the you, you basically did the parachute course as an officer cadet mm. so I did that um for fun basically I mean you volunteered for it and then uh, of course you do parachute training in the SAS everybody does yeah you do a lot of it don't you quite a bit yeah yeah, yeah I, I mean it depends because if you're a free faller you know if you're in free fall troop each squadron has a free fall troop and so obviously if you're a free faller then you do a hell of a lot of it. Mm. Uh, the rest of us sort of muddle along. Well, the funny thing was that what the one thing that the free fallers absolutely hated was static line, which is what we all do. <laughs> you know, they were fine jumping out at 20,000 feet at night with oxygen and a Bergen on their legs and oh my God, I don't know how they did it.
0: Mm.
1: But you say to them, OK, we're going to jump at 600 feet on. a on a static line they said oh my god no we don't want to do that
0: <laughs> yes i did two parachute courses the first one we got as far as the balloon jump and then it was cancelled because all the hercules went out to the the first gulf war right um but i shared my room with two SES guys um and they were probably like the two most humble people i've ever met think that might surprise a lot of people, but you just would not know you just would not know that these guys were the, you know, the elite of the elite.
1: <laughs> no, some of the guys are very surprising.
0: There was one one time where um, they were bimbling along. I think we'll go into to to what you guys would call scoff, what we call Scran and um, the RSN <laughs> came out. He went, you two, put your effing berries on now. <laughs> and these two troopers just went, <laughs> and
1: carried on walking. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Is he talking to us? <laughs>
0: yeah, well, they were like, you know, nobody talks to us that way, sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, I remember when I did my, my parachute course the second time I did it with the, uh, which was with, SAS, and um, I, you know, obviously, I don't think I need to say that. But as a young officer, you're pretty nervous, and the the parachute course is at the end of your, SAS selection and continuation, and it's almost like a sort of holiday really, because you know you've been through the whole thing, and now you you've got two weeks away from camp, and you're just gonna, you know, do these do these jumps, which we'd all done before anyway and um the so we were with i don't know 40 or 50 parachute regiment recruits and they really were parachute regiment recruits uh you know they've just done p company and now they're going to do their their and so i think there were about eight or nine of us sas guys on this course with these 40 or 50 parachute regiment guys and um i think we had done the first jump from the aircraft and the, the, the SAS guys formed up to me as the Rupert and said, right boss, listen, um, we want you to go and talk to the commandant of this place because we're not gonna jump with those beep, diddy, beep, beep, beeps again. <laughs> and I said, well, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, they're, they're just dangerous because they're so gung-ho. All they wanna do is charge out the back of that aeroplane. There's no thought of timing between the doors, you know, left, right, left, right and uh, we don't want to jump with them. So I thought, oh God, now what? You know. So anyway, have to go and form up to the uh, RAF commanding officer, I think. tell him the situation. He looked at me and he said, you know what, Simon? I don't blame them and I don't blame you. It's fine, you'll all jump as your own stick. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite funny.
0: Yes. As a Marine, I always had to make sure I was the first one out because we, we had a load of baby paras in with us as as well.
1: And, so you know um, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh,
0: <laughs> there was one time in the balloon. Um they say, right, number off. So I'm like, one, you know, just my arm was straight, straight up. So basically, for friend our friends listening, that means you're first in the door. And uh he said, right, number one to the door, and I stepped forward, arms across the reserve. And um, I just turned around and said, I'll see you guys on the ground. Geronimo. <laughs> <laughs> like that. And then when I caught up with them in the hangar, I said, uh, Yeah, did you think it was funny when I said, I'll see you guys on the ground? And they said, actually, Chris, we were just shitting ourselves. Didn't no. really didn't really hear what you said. <laughs> <Didn't hear> you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, gosh. Great experience throwing yourself out of aeroplanes.
1: Yeah, I preferred aeroplanes to the balloon, actually, I must admit. So there was something very clinical about the balloon jump.
0: Yeah, it's like it's all well, it's it's a base jump technically, isn't it? Which is kind of it all seems so much more serious if it's going to open or not. Because Mm. if it doesn't, you haven't really got much height to rectify it
1: no and in the airplane you've got all that noise and the smell and the shouting and the and the sort of the whole stick going out and all of that whereas the balloon it's very quiet there you go off you go sir kind yes. of thing <laughs> and uh very different and then of course you're going to fall straight down you're not going to go sideways with the movement of the aircraft they took the
0: balloon up to four five commando and the guys were just giving their mates their, their woolly pulleys with their para wings on and going, go on, you go for it. And um, <laughs> there's guys going out doing backflips and somersaults, and the PJIs PGA, are saying, "Are you sure that guy's para trained?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that, uh, that was quite funny on the um, what they used to call stud splash. You know, jumping into Studland Bay. Uh, okay and uh, we, we used to do that because i was a boat troop um and so we were did quite a lot of water stuff with pool actually we down there quite a lot and um in those days they used to allow non paratrained civilians to jump off the tailgate of the c-130 into the sea because why not you know what? Well, what can possibly go wrong? Well, it turned out that actually quite a lot could possibly go wrong <laughs> because <laughs> one guy dropped his reserve. You know, said it. So when he when he released one side of the reserve, he didn't release one side of the reserve, he released both sides of the reserve. But I mean, it's about 500 feet up. So this reserve comes down and the uh, the booties in the in the Gemini's were sort of laughing. So I, well, I had to make sure they didn't land on them. And then the next guy that came out Misjudged the distance completely, and I don't know what height he was when he fell out of his harness, but quite high, mm, yeah. <laughs> high enough for everyone to go ooh.
0: <laughs> yeah, the things you do when you're young. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it was pretty good fun. Mm. I loved it.
0: How has it been a a help? Or or a hindrance, Simon, being you I mean you're tagged with mercenary everywhere you go, or well, obviously or throughout social media is, is
1: how how have you found that? Well that's a pain. Um, because you know mercenary is a fairly pejorative um word among for most people, and um it's it's a sort of pointless debate because you know you can talk about what is a mercenary all day long. And uh, some people would say, well, any professional soldier surely is a mercenary. And then you have, well, no, no, because that's for queen and country. Really, well, a Gurkha isn't, you know, he doesn't come from here, so is he a mercenary? And and that whole debate is completely pointless, really. Um, And so I sort of avoid it. And um, in fact, on LinkedIn, for those who follow LinkedIn, I've been arguing that we ought to be called Condottieri, which is the Italian for mercenary, and it just sounds so much better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, it's kind of funny to place you even in that scene, because, I mean, I've had guys I was in the Marines with, they've gone out and they've done, you know, security on diamond mines in Africa or Angola and It's not unusual for guys to come out of an elite force or a special force and go and do that line of work, isn't it? Not not really caring what the parameters of the the, the or the politics are, but if there's a big paycheck at the end of it. But you, you, am I right in thinking you were more um, trying to do the right thing, or was there an uh, element? Was there an element of? I'm
1: going to get paid a lot for this as well no i mean it, it it's 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 you know it's i you know i've written a book you know i've got a book called yes. cry house um, actually funny enough it's behind me this is my friend's house but this is actually the book's actually somewhere up in the I'm, I'm going to put a link for it under our video simon okay cool yeah well it's um and so i mean basically i rejoined I mean, without telling having to tell a whole story again, but I mean, I rejoined the British Army uh, because of the first Gulf War and I was on the staff of Peter de la Villiers and that all came to an end in February, 92. Uh, and um, I, I was offered an, a, a job back in the special air service actually arranged by Peter because I was on a TA attachment to do my service with him. And um, they would convert it back to being a um, regular commission, blah, blah, blah. And then Tony Buckingham, at the same time, started Heritage Oil and Gas, which I'd actually helped him a little bit with, and said, No, come on, you know, you've, you've done the whole army thing. It's time you made some proper money. Come and join me in Heritage. I said, OK, I, I really actually probably ought to try and do that and make some proper money. And um, lo and behold, what was it, about seven months later, I was a general in the Angolan army at war. (laughs) so My attempt at becoming a civilian was an abject failure. Um, And the reason we got into, we were in that position was because basically UNITA, who were the guerrillas, having signed an agreement and having made all sorts of promises, uh, went against their agreement and against their promises and they went back to war having lost the elections of November 92. It was a really big deal because, I mean, that was, that was what got the Russians and the Cubans and the South Africans and the Americans all out of Angola, all in the lead up to that election. Long story. Anyway, they went back to war. And the first thing they did was they attacked our operating base, which is a place called Soyo on the mouth of the river Congo. And um, we decided that we would fight back that we wouldn't just say okay we're going home and pack our bags we thought no you know these guys are committing a huge crime against humanity going back to war they signed an agreement they made a peace treaty they've got no right to go back to war whatsoever and they're attacked they've attacked us you know our men our kit our livelihood um to hell with them uh so we pitched a pitched the idea to the angolans they liked it, and that was effectively the beginning of executive outcomes. I mean, executive outcomes existed before that, but hadn't done anything of that sort at all. Um, and the next thing, we're in a pitch battle to recapture Soyuz, which is all quite well-known, quite well-documented. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it wasn't like a deliberate decision to go and fight or. Uh, become a security guy. It was actually the opposite. I was hoping I was going to become an oil and gas man, <laughs> but um, it wasn't. It, that wasn't going to. It wasn't to be. And so um, the whole mercenary thing there is quite annoying in a way because you know how are we mercenaries? You know, we we firstly we're a- acting almost in self defence. We're acting in on behalf of our company and our livelihood, and secondly we're like Gurkhas because we were all signed up into the Angolan armed forces. You know, I had an ID card, badges of rank, all the rest of it. So that doesn't normally fulfill the mercenary, you know, definition.
0: Yeah. My gosh. So, yeah, so I, 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 I see. And how did you go from there to the Equatorial Guinea situation?
1: Well, that was much later. So the, the Angolan stuff all happened in ninety three. So that's when it, that's when Executive Outcomes really started as a uh, mercenary company. Um, and I think it's important to actually differentiate between you know private security company, private military company, and what Executive Outcomes was, because you know a lot of these what they call PMCs, what are they actually doing? You know they're guarding an embassy or they're escorting VIPs around. And yeah, if they get shot at, they'll shoot back, fine. But they don't go to a government and say, we'll help you win your war. We'll come and fight this war with you and we'll help you win it, which is what executive outcomes did. And that is a a, a rather different thing. But anyway, while, while Angola was going on, we started Sierra Leone and shortly after that, while that was going on, Papua New Guinea happened, that big mess, and then the arms to Sierra Leone scandal which resulted in the resignation of Robin Cook, all of those dramas happened. And that was basically when I thought, well, I think I'll take the family down to Cape Town <laughs> and relax in the vineyards of Constantia, uh, which is what I did until 2003. And that was when I was recruited to do the Equatorial Guinea um, failed coup attempt. Oh, am I right in
0: thinking you were tricked into or, or, or was it double crossed
1: no it's again it's a long story but you know no i was recruited to do it I, I i said yeah i agreed to do it i wanted to do it and um it went wrong you know and um my mistake my fault i should have called it off uh, but i didn't and um we were arrested <laughs> How did Mark Thatcher get involved? What 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 did he
0: what was he looking to get out of this?
1: Well, how he got involved was that basically the guy who should have been backing the whole thing and um, driving the show, who is the, guy, who, who is the guy who recruited me, it's a guy called Eli Khalil, who's now dead, um, and he wasn't backing us properly, and basically the whole thing was going to fail. It was just going to be it was just going to fall apart, not going to happen, and I needed two hundred thousand. Um, dollars to keep the show on the road and i thought well who is who is crazy enough to just you know write out a check for two hundred thousand dollars to be a part of this and to make this happen and uh mark was you know a friend really i mean sort of more of an acquaintance than a friend but he was a friend in a way down in cape town and you know we used to have dinner parties together and all that business but i didn't really know him that well but I thought, yeah, well, I think Mark would love to do this. So, so he joined in, signed up, paid his two hundred thousand. And then when the shit hit the fan, wow, he got absolutely clobbered.
0: Yes, I bet. When you were arrested, in was it Harare Airport. So you're on your way to Equatorial Guinea. Uh, yeah, that's right. And you were going to pick up a, your your weapons in. In Zimbabwe,
1: Harare, yeah,
0: yeah. How did how did that play out? And at what point did you think, oh shit? It's
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I'd been there for a few days because what we were doing was collecting the arms and ammunition, as you say. And the aeroplane came in my lovely Boeing seven two seven, which we just bought, um, and with the men on board. And the idea was we. know they were just going to stop load the stuff on and away we go and um i went to collect actually check over the weapons and got onto the back of a truck and there was there were very few weapons there and i thought oh hmm, something's really wrong here and then i heard this voice saying get down from the truck and uh, that's it we were we were under arrest
0: oh my god
1: did they arrest all, all all of your men Oh yeah, yeah, everyone went to prison. Uh, the men for 18 months, a year or 18 months, in depending, in uh, Harare, Chikarubi Max, Chick Max. They call it the Harare Hilton.
0: Yeah. <laughs> These places get the tag Hilton, don't they? It's mm, like,
1: yeah, not a good place.
0: I'm guessing ironically. Um, and where did you recruit those guys from? Were they, you know, were they a ragtag bunch of bandits, or were
1: they all? No, no, they were all from Executive Outcomes, hmm. almost yeah. without exception.
0: Yeah. And where did Executive Outcomes recruit from mainly? Was it ex-PARAS and Marines? No, I mean,
1: Executive Outcomes was almost exclusively our ex-South African Defence Force, either parachute Parabat or recce, which is their equivalent of special forces. Uh, But many of them were from the notorious 3-2 battalion because I mean, 80% of executive outcomes were black. And those guys came from 3-2 battalion who were basically people who the South Africans recruited in Angola to fight for the South Africans against the MPLA, the then Angolan government, actually still the Angolan government, but yeah. A complicated and long story i mean angola was the worst um angola was the worst and, and most intense proxy war of the entire cold war and it was real war i mean the, you know heavy artillery fighters dog fighting tanks etc um and most people actually in the uk pretty ignorant of the whole thing mm. they don't even know where angola is most people But it was a major war.
0: Yes. Well, they saw that. I mean, they had it bad, didn't they? The back in, uh, I mean, originally Portugal didn't want to give its colonies up, so there was a brutal fight there. Then they had all this the civil war again. It's just.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, for the poor old Angolans. I mean, actually, this was one of the reasons I was so angry when UNITA went back to war. You know, I was past it. I, was, I just thought it was an outrageous thing to do, because as you say, they'd had this incredibly long war. They fought against the Portuguese. There were about three or four different factions who fought against the Portuguese. Portuguese packed it up and ran away in 76 when they had their own coup in Portugal, if you remember. And then the civil war started, um, which was MPLA, Backed by Russia and Cuba uh, yeah. against UNITA, the guerrillas, backed by the United States and South Africa. And I knew Zavimbi. I mean, I actually spent four hours with Zavimbi talking about the whole thing, the whole story. And he promised, I was with Lord Steele, the liberal, uh, you know, the leader of the House in Scotland, um, David Steele, is mm. a very good guy. And he and I went and saw. Um, Zavimbi. We spent four hours with them. I mean, the only reason I saw Zavimbi because I was with Lord Steele. I mean, <laughs> Zavimbi wouldn't have seen me otherwise. But I was the I was sort of David Steele's bag carrier. But actually I was a little bit more than that because we were uh we wanted to um we wanted to make sure that if Zavimbi won, the oil company that I was by then working for would be still regarded as friendly.
0: Yeah, but, you know, the whole
1: thing there about him and he's, he, he he looks in the eye and he, I actually don't think UNITA intended to go back to war. I think they were pushed back into it. I don't think it was their decision. Well, there's
0: massive wealth in that part of the world, isn't it? The massive, yeah. massive natural resources and.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Angola is just the most incredible country. I mean, it's three times the size of France. We've got oil, um, copper, gold, diamonds, fish in the sea, fantastic farmland. I mean, it's just the most fabulous place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and and uh,
1: destroyed by years of civil war. I mean,
0: how many landmines must be in the ground there? Would-
1: yeah, I mean, you know, they are they are working their way through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're sorting it out slowly but surely.
0: Mm-hmm. Simon, I'm conscious of your your time here. Can you just give us an idea of w- what was it like in a foreign prison and what what mindset <laughs> what mindset do you have to adopt?
1: Uh, yeah, um, the mindset um, thing is, uh, is pretty important. But you know, people come to me and they say, Oh, well, you know, it doesn't compare with you. But I actually spent two weeks in a jail in, you know, wherever bikina Faso, or something and uh, but of course that's nothing like what you had to do i said no 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 it's fine one day is a day too many Mm -hmm. you know your two weeks would have been hell (laughs) so it's i understand exactly what you're talking about and um i mean one of the sort of weird things about it is that um it's almost it's a double punishment or even a treble punishment in a sense because you know I'm sure UK prisons are not all that pleasant. um, Although some of them look pretty good. Um, But your family can come and visit you. You Yeah, my family couldn't come and visit me. And also, if you make a joke with your fellow prisoners about, you know, what a load of rubbish a certain football team is, they will understand it. If you're in um, Zimbabwe, they don't and so you're in a kind of exile you know you're hot, you're in a cultural exile and i think that makes it much harder and then of course when i got to Equatorial guinea because you know i did two so i did four years um in in Chikurubi, in harare and then i was kind of kidnapped out of that prison and i was smuggled to Equatorial guinea where they put me in black beach there and in Black Beach, I was in solitary confinement, you know, strict solitary confinement, uh, for 18 months.
0: God. That's like that's either character building or <laughs> character, character breaking, isn't it?
1: Uh yeah, <laughs> probably. But I mean you've got no choice, so you just got to What did they it. feed? What did they feed you? Um, oh well in Zim, they just feed you sadza which is, um, you know, boiled up mealy meal. salsa in the evening, and what they call bota, which is the same meal, but cooked a different way, um, for porridge in the morning. And that's it, basically. Uh, But luckily, um, having a, a super wife and family, I had extra food.
0: Oh, they could
1: subsidize you, could they? Yeah, so you know that I get some tins, or sardines, or something like that.
0: And Simon, if I may say so, um, you look remarkably healthy. For <laughs> are you set seventy now? Is it? Would that be right? No, Sixty-eight. Yeah. My God, you're you're out doing. well, a lot of guys in their fifties, I'd say.
1: <laughs> well, I try and run every day. Um, I really try and keep fit.
0: Yeah. What are your times like? Do you find them slipping as you get older? or are you? Oh,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I try and stick to this thing that you should be able to do 10 Ks in the same number of minutes as you are old in years. Ah, uh, OK. Now, obviously, if you're 25, that's going to be extremely difficult. <laughs> but it's, it's quite a good benchmark as you get older.
0: Yeah. I'm not, I'm not particularly good at doing mass on the spot, but I'll have to work that out. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna I'm running 200 miles this
1: month. Oh, my God. Okay,
0: yes. One of these silly things that I do, I'm, I'm, I've got this project called running homeless for Christmas. Okay. And I'm just going to hit my running track and just run 200 miles. And if I can do it in two days, great, then I then I get home for Christmas Eve. If I don't, then I'm I'm out for the for the long run. I'm I want to um, just do what I can to highlight the veterans' plight, the the amount of our, our service personnel that that um, suffer with trauma and and subsequently housing problems. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hope that day doesn't
1: come when. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when i can't keep pretending
1: I'm 21 yeah no well that, it will <laughs> i mean I, i'm i'm very lucky but i find now you know you get an injury you pick up a minor injury like a tweaked knee you know which back in the day would have cured quickly and now it sort of stays with you you can't run for quite a while and then that that means you know when you do start running again, you've got to be very careful you don't pick up another injury and you know it just you know you just got to be quite a lot more careful
0: yes, I bet body management
1: yeah, but I think it's also the same you know with the with the whole mental health thing as well you know I think the guys um some of the guys have a real problem with asking for help and sort of you know understanding that they can't do what they used to be able to do you know because we all you got your background my background we all set set such an incredibly high um uh we we set very very high standards for ourselves mm. of fitness of mental toughness and all the rest of it and i think you know that that becomes dangerous actually as you as you get older you don't want help you don't want to tell anybody you're not feeling well and um, and that is a real issue i think
0: yes very much so anyone out there struggling there's phone numbers at the bottom of my youtube video that you can reach out and talk to somebody
1: yeah you've got to do it you know i mean i get asked um you know well how how, how is your mental health you know 18 months in solitary confinement i mean that's meant to sort of send anybody round the twist I mean. and i say well you don't ask me <laughs> <laughs> i might be thinking i'm napoleon and everything's fine you know? <laughs> but um, I, I i did a talk actually to the um sds um uh regimental association just before uh the first just before christmas actually and um i knew that the association wanted me to talk about the whole business of sort of um, you know asking for help um, and uh, I, I thought, God, I cannot stand up in front of them and tell them they've got to ask for help. You know, that's that's not that's not going to work. So I um, I turned it around completely, and I cited two people who I knew were heroes to the audience. You know, all SAS guys, David Sterling, who I really knew quite well, and Peter De La billier i also really knew quite well and worked well i worked for both of them actually on different occasions and um i said you know the amazing thing about both those guys is that anybody fit feels felt with them that uh they could go and talk to them considering who they were they were fantastically approachable so if somebody wanted to ask for help they would accept that 100% and they would uh, welcome it. And I thought, my idea was that by turning it around, I got the same message across to the guys without sounding patronising, you know. Yes. It's true though, because both of those guys are incredibly approachable.
0: Do you know Damien Lewis?
1: No, I don't. Uh,
0: Damien writes a lot of SAS type, uh memoirs not 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 personal memoirs but but about the um a regiment okay and um yeah we were just he came on the podcast the other day he's a very famous author and um yeah no I've,
1: i've seen his book
0: yeah he was saying how much um like the amount of trauma somebody like paddy main must have accumulated in during their service with the you know the the untold acts of of uh warfare that he was involved in and how back then you you just had the drink and you you didn't have this thing where you could reach out to people um yeah it's quite
1: that i agree with you and i was actually quite what was that book called um SAS Heroes, the one, it was a big success uh, two or three years ago. I can't actually remember the name of the title, but it was the official, it was an official history of the SAS in the war. And I was shocked how much they were drinking at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never mind afterwards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but Paddy Mayne, in fact, actually at the dinner that I did this talk I just talked about just now, mentioned just now, um, there was a guy there who'd who had served in two SAS in the war. And, uh, he said, well, I was lucky. I didn't have to do selection. Like you all did. He said, really, you didn't do selection. He's he said, no, no, we didn't do selection those days. I just got interviewed by Paddy main. <laughs> and I said, well, I think, I think actually probably selection would be easier than being interviewed by Paddy. Main.
0: <laughs> yes. I got a feeling a bottle of whiskey came into that interview. <laughs>
1: it's a
0: benchmark.
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I must admit, I've got just lately um, people have asked me about uh, you know the lockdown and all this, the, the whole COVID-19 thing. And um said, so, so, what do you think about it? And what what I mean, what do you think Colonel David would have thought about what snow? You I said, Well. I don't think he would re- have regarded "Stay Safe" as a very good way of saying goodbye to people. Stay safe. <laughs> yes, that's a there's whole nothing, other... There's nothing safe about him.
0: <laughs> no, it's amazing that you know him. I mean, he's he's obviously legend legendary David Sterling.
1: Totally, absolutely amazing guy. I mean, just incredible guy. I was in, I was very, very lucky to get to know him actually quite well. Yeah. Simon, well, I it, wasn't, it wasn't entirely luck actually because I sort of blagged my way in and, you know, got to know him and started working for him. But I kind of cold called him, <laughs> which was uh, an interesting moment. But anyway.
0: Yeah. Sounds like you can get away with that sort of thing in the essay. I say, appreciate the
1: the well that was the thing he really was very approachable and the first time i met him i was absolutely terrified you know i knew who he was i was a very young officer in the scot's guards and i was very bored you know i had been to north Ireland twice and i that was a pain in the ass and i knew i knew he was up to all sorts of interesting things and i went in and see him in his beautiful office above goods in um south audley street 22 south Audley street so it's 22 the address is 22 i say and lovely office went in and it was evening with no lights and this great big desk beautiful office and he's sitting there he said oh come in come here in, come in. sit down
0: yeah
1: i'm just about to light a cigar but it's the last one but i haven't lit it yet i tell you what i'll toss you for it <laughs> and it's just it's just a stupid small thing but he had the gift that he could put someone at ease, you know. Mm.
0: Yes, a, a leader of men.
1: Absolutely amazing guy. Yeah. So thank
0: thank you ever so much for your time. It's been a fascinating chat. Um, you're I'm going to put the all your links. I'll put what should I put your LinkedIn lit uh, LinkedIn
1: page. I can put yeah, the LinkedIn because I don't really do the others. Yeah. And, and you can mention the book if you like. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, long, long gone. And will you send me the, send me the link so I can put them on my LinkedIn as well.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. And um, let's chat again if that's okay. That would be, that'll be my pleasure.
1: Sure. Well, that's fine. No, and I enjoyed it. My pleasure too.
0: Yes. Take care. Speak soon. All right
1: then. Thanks, Simon. Cheers, that.